What would you do if you got scammed? Would you suffer in silence or would you do something about it? Well, I got scammed once and this is the story of what I did. I'm Justin Sales, the host of The Wedding Scammer, a true crime podcast from The Ringer. And for seven episodes, we're hunting a con man, a guy with a lot of aliases, a guy who's ruined a lot of weddings. And with the help of some friends, I just might be able to catch him. Listen to The Wedding Scammer starting October 17th. This episode is brought to you by Empower. You got money questions like, can I retire early? What are my best savings options? Can I afford to pay for my kid's education? Luckily, Empower has all the answers. With Empower's real-time dashboard and real live conversations, you get clarity on your real-life financial goals. So join 18 million Americans and Empower What's Next. Start today at Empower.com. Tap the banner or visit this episode's page to learn more. Sponsored by Empower, not an endorsement or a statement of satisfaction by a client. This episode is brought to you by Lululemon. Guys, if you're ready for a new pair of pants, try one of Lululemon's ABC pants. They're made to make you look and feel good. And there's lots of different styles to choose from. My favorite, because I walk around LA every day, I like the joggers. I'm not jogging, I'm just walking fast. But if you're working out, I would try them out. And if you want something a little sleek, maybe business-like, maybe try the ABC Slim Fit Trouser, but I am a joggers guy. I just, once COVID happened, I was just like, I'm, I wanna wear jogging pants and joggers and all kinds of soft pants as much as I possibly can, especially when I'm working out. Ultra comfortable and versatile. ABC pants are really in a league of their own. Buy a pair right now at lululemon.com. Hello there, friends. A few announcements before this week's episode, many of them pertaining to my book. My book, conveniently also titled 60 Songs That Explain the 90s, will be released on Tuesday, November 14th. 2023 and is available for pre-order now at all the usual pre-order type joints. I am very excited about it and I hope you'll check it out. Announcement number one, today only, Wednesday, October 11th, we are partnering with Books A Million for a one-day only 25% off flash sale. You can pre-order the book via the BAM website and get 25% off, but only today. That link will be in the show notes here, and I'll also put the link up on Twitter where my handle is just plain old Harvilla, H-A-R-V-I-L-L-A. Announcement number two, starting tomorrow, Thursday, October 12th, we are partnering with Premier Collectibles to offer signed book plate copies of the book. I signed like 400 autographs last night. I had never before had to put much thought into what my signature looked like. I think it went great. That link also will be in the show notes, and also I'll put it up on Twitter. To repeat, signed book plate copies of 60 Songs That Explain the 90s. The book will be on sale for pre-orders starting Thursday, October 12th. And finally, for those of you in the Los Angeles area, I am pleased to announce that we are doing a live podcast event, a book celebration and crossover spectacular featuring me, Bandsplain and 24 Question Party People host Yasi Salek, and as a special guest, The Watch's own Chris Ryan, all of whom appearing live in person in Los Angeles on Thursday, November 16th at 8 p.m., at the Terragram Ballroom. Do not ask me where in Los Angeles that is. Ask someone who lives there. That's what I did. You can get tickets now while they last 
at terragramballroom.com. That's T-E-R-A-G-R-A-M ballroom.com. That date again is Thursday, November 16th at 8 p.m. I hope to see you there. Thank you for your patience. I hope you check out the book in some fashion. And now, on with the show. Thanks. We don't talk enough about guitar tone, do we? It ain't no joke. No, it ain't. Dig that guitar tone, man. Dig the rad guitar tone on Walking on the Sun, the breakout single from chaotic San Jose rock band Smash Mouth. From their 1997 debut album, Fush You Mang, F-U-S-H-Y-U-M-A-N-G. Scarface reference, the crunchiness, the fuzzed out grouchiness, the vaguely retro brattiness of that super rad guitar tone. It is 1997 and we're about through with scare quotes alternative rock ain't we? Grunge has peaked. Britpop has peaked. OK Computer is phenomenal and will, in fact, define the next 15 years of my life. But I hear that Radiohead are thinking of selling their guitars and buying a bunch of synthesizers and arpeggiators because they want to make something real. They want to make a can record. Heads up, rock is dead, Again, rock remains dead. And now it's weird out there, folks. It's surreal. It's 1997 and ska is big now. Neo swing is big now. Electronica is in now. Total chaos is in now. And here, then, is the genially scratchy sound of total chaos. It ain't no joke. Steve Harwell, frontman, smash mouth. Dig that raspy, blunt, and yet alarmingly sincere vocal tone. It ain't no joke. It ain't no joke even if he sounds funny. Even if he's maybe sort of trying to be funny. Talking to Rolling Stone in 2019, Steve says, Walking on the Sun changed music. It changed the way people listen to music. I've talked to other artists over the years, and they said the day that song came on the radio, they were like, we're fucked. It was so different, and it was so unusual, and it was so special. It just had that sound that we created. Ask anybody that's tried to copy us. You can't. You just can't. End quote. Is he exaggerating? Perhaps. Perhaps. Is he being a little vague? A little. Do Smash Mouth in 1997 look like a bowling team that spontaneously decided to start a rock band? Absolutely. That's not an insult or a complaint. If you, like me, have super fond memories of spending hours playing heavy barrel in the bowling alley arcade while your parents won their bowling league, I think you'll agree that Smash Mouth's proto-Guy Fieri look is a selling point. So let's change music, fellas. 25 years ago, they spoke out and they broke out of recession and oppression and together they took and... Also... 
Walking on the Sun, a 1997 lament for the slow, cynical death of 60s idealism, is a pretty great song that is now itself a quarter century old. Ugh, that's tough. But yeah, the thesis here is things used to be better, but now they're worse. Just singing and clapping, man. What the hell happened? Fashion is smashing the true meaning of it. Put away the crack before the crack puts you away. You need to be there when your baby's old enough to be laid. That's what he says there, right? Put away the crack before the crack puts you away. You need to be there when your baby's old enough to be laid. Well, I'll be damned. It turns out that's not what he says. It turns out that Steve says, you need to be there when your baby's old enough to relate. Oh, I thought it was when your baby's old enough to be laid. So like when your children are teenagers and having sex, I misheard Steve on that line for 26 years. I regret the error. Guitar tone. Dig that guitar tone man. Shout out Smash Mouth co-founder and guitarist and songwriter Greg Camp providing that rad guitar tone. What I know for sure is that Walking on the Sun is startling and delightful and 1997 is hell. And the single most 1997 aspect of this song is that it doesn't really sound anything like any of the other songs on the record it's on, which I am pleased to remind you is called Fushu Mang. Hit it, fellas. That song's called Let's Rock. And here's where the total chaos kicks in. Smash Mouth started out as a bunch of dudes who used to be in rap groups. Steve's was called FOS, which relax stands for freedom of speech. And Smash Mouth are, at least initially, a ska punk band. And occasionally, perhaps even a thrash punk band. This song is not called Let's Rock. No, that song is called Heave Ho, and it's about getting evicted because you partied too hard. Steve Harwell, in a 1997 interview, says, The question of a particular style never once crossed our minds. We didn't want to be labeled as a punk band, a ska band, a surf band, a rock band, a pop band, or a whatever band. We just wanted to be us, smash mouth, and leave it to the people to interpret what we are. End quote. Consequently, many of those people trying to interpret Smash Mouth were super confused. Fushu Mang producer Eric Valentine, in that 2019 Rolling Stone article, he says, Smash Mouth, quote, had this dubious distinction of having a very, very successful record, but it was also one of the most returned albums because the very visible single, Walking on the Sun, was so different than the rest of the record. People would get the record and it was like, what is going on? Why is all the rest of this music so different? End quote. My favorite song on this record is called The Fonz and sounds like Weezer. The second most streamed song on this record is a ska cover of War's 1975 pop funk hit, Why Can't We Be Friends? And this song is called Sorry About Your Penis. Sorry about your penis. Ah, 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 ah. 
guitar tone. Just now I almost typed sorry about your penis into the YouTube search bar, but I stopped myself just in time. Close one. Smash Mouth. Super chaotic band. Smash Mouth. Gleeful, equal opportunity, subgenre desecrators. Smash Mouth. Sublimes Wario. The Smash Mouth, a wildly unpredictable rock band with, in Walking on the Sun, an unexpectedly huge hit song that teaches them the value of reinventing themselves as a slightly less wildly unpredictable pop band. Anomalous and destabilizing and band-redefining surprise hit singles were a big whoop in 1997. For example, in 1995... Jovial Newport Beach rock band Sugar Ray sound like this. Guitar tone. That song's called Mean Machine. I'm not going to tell you what I always thought dreamy Sugar Ray frontman Mark McGrath was singing. Right there, but it turns out I was right. Sorry about your penis. Whereas in 1997, suddenly Sugar Ray sound like this. And then Sugar Ray get to be a famous pop band. And then Mark McGrath hosts some game shows. Post Walking on the Sun, our friends in Smash Mouth are about to make that same transition from chaotic rock band to semi-chaotic pop band because that 2019 Rolling Stone article is, in fact, a lengthy and lovely oral history of one Smash Mouth song and not that one. This one. Somebody! And this ain't no joke either. No matter how much of a joke it may once have been or how big of a way-too-online sort of joke it eventually became. It's a great opening line. Let's not be rude. Let him do the whole line. Somebody once told me the world is gonna roll me. I ain't the sharpest tool in the shed. That's a monster opening line. Tone sincere. All-star from Smash Mouth's 1999 album Astro Lounge is a destabilizingly huge top five pop hit. Once again, guitarist Greg Camp wrote it, and as he explained to Rolling Stone, he wrote it after reading a bunch of fan mail while sitting in laundromats on tour. Quote, we would read the mail and do our laundry, and we noticed that there was a common thread in all of these letters, kids thanking us for being their band. They were sort of outcasts. They were kind of nerdy and picked on and stuff like that. End quote. So this one's for the nerds. The guitar tone, less rad. It's fine. This is not as rad. The chorus immortal. Sometimes that's the trade-off. Then All-Star shows up on the soundtrack to Shrek, the disconcertingly popular 2001 animated children's film, in which Mike Myers voices a friendly green ogre. Then, an entire generation raised on Shrek grows up to spend all their time on TikTok 
making fucking all-star memes. Mario, Bill O'Reilly, Kermit the Frog, Star Wars characters. The Star Wars version is a Jimmy Fallon enterprise, but it's still pretty good. Yeah, that's fine. My favorite all-star meme, and it took me a while to find this, is this TikTok of a dude sitting on a couch playing video games and his friend holding the camera is playing him a new remix of The Black Parade by My Chemical Romance just to film his reaction. Somebody... And the video game playing dude's eyes roll back into his head in exasperation. Phenomenal video. I had to search TikTok for that, dude. The TikTok search bar is not a natural environment for a grown-ass man. I don't ever want to do that again. Steve Harwell, talking to Stereogum in 2017, he says, you know, I try not to pay attention to social media very much. I try not to personally read and look at all that shit, but I think it's cool that All-Star has made such a resurgence. And then he says, it's entertaining. I get it. It doesn't bother me, but at the same time, I don't love it. End quote. Steve Harwell toured with Smash Mouth another 20 plus years, and they put out five more albums. The last one comes out in 2012 and is called Magic and ends with their cover of Don't You Forget About Me. Yes, that one. That sounds exactly the way I thought that would sound. Smash Mouth covering Don't You Forget About Me sounds more like how I thought it would sound than any other song I've ever heard in my life. Remarkable. Steve Harwell leaves Smash Mouth in 2021. He retires. He struggles, often quite publicly, with physical and mental health issues. Let's not get into it. Go look all that up on the internet. Or better yet, don't. All I have to say about modern-day Smash Mouth is that bassist Paul Delisle is now the only original member left in Smash Mouth, and their new lead singer is a dude named Zach Good, who's super tall and muscly, and now in band photos, it looks like Zach could pick up all four other members of Smash Mouth and play them like an accordion. Just... I don't imagine there's much internal debate in Smash Mouth these days. I think the muscly lead singer guy says, we should totally do this. And the other guys say, oh yeah, sorry, totally, great idea, sorry. Let's do it, sorry, yeah, totally. I'm stalling. Steve Harwell died of liver failure on September 4th, 2023. He was 56. In that Rolling Stone oral history of All-Star, Steve says, I'm not going to toot my own horn, but nobody else could have sang that song. It would have never been what it is now. I could have pitched that song to a million bands and they would have tried to do it and it would have never been what it is. End quote. He is for sure tooting his own horn there, but he's not wrong. He may not have been the sharpest tool in the shed, but he was the right one. 
This is not a case of a super happy song that is now transformed by personal tragedy into a super sad song. All Star is unaffected by real world events. All Star abides. But I do wince a little now. Every time I read an old interview where Steve is still blatantly grappling with how it feels to be shreked and memed out the wazoo. In 2017, he told Polygon, quote, Shrek is a daily occurrence for us, end quote, which is a super dark thing to say. Actually, Shrek is a daily occurrence for us. Ubiquitous hit songs are dehumanizing. After you've heard a song 500,000 times on the radio, it's like you don't even hear it anymore. It doesn't really mean anything anymore. And the people playing it don't feel like real people anymore. And then something terrible happens. And you are abruptly reminded that these people are painfully real. All Star had almost 25 years on the radio and on the internet before it was cruelly rehumanized by tragedy. But of course, sometimes that all happens way faster. Guitar tone. That's a genuinely beautiful guitar tone, dude. So bright and fluid and playful and joyful. A defiantly bright ray of sunshine amidst all the sludgy and grouchy and joyless guitar tones clogging up alt-rock radio in 1992. All that grim, unimaginative, God bless, no rain, by Los Angeles rock band Blind Melon from their self-titled 1992 debut album. I heard No Rain on the radio 500,000 times in 1992 and 1993 alone. And I'm going to be honest and say that it's never the song I was hoping to hear on the radio, right? We've talked about this. You're listening to the radio. At any given time, you've got three to five songs you're dying to hear. And the song you're currently listening to ends and you lean forward in anticipation, trying to manifest one of those three to five songs you're dying to hear. But instead, the rad guitar tone of No Rain kicks in. And if you're me, at least, your shoulders slump in disappointment for just an instant. But then, in the next instant, you think, ah, come on, dude, don't be rude. This song kind of kicks ass. It just happens to kick ass very gently. I'm going to be honest again and say that I have always heard that line as I like watching the birds gather rain, which does not make sense. And I like watching the puddles gather rain, which is what Blind Melon frontman Shannon Hoon actually sings. That makes way more sense, actually. Do you ever just sit around thinking about what a weird opening line that is? All I can say is that my life is pretty plain. The all I can say part is almost weirder than the my life is pretty plain part. The modesty, the chillness, the aggressively lowered stakes of that opening line. That's all he has to say. You ever sit around thinking about why all he can do is read a book to stay awake and why he would want or need to do that? And all I can do is read a book to stay awake. No Rain was made further ubiquitous. 
uh, No Rain was memified in a distinctly early 90s sort of way by the fabled B-Girl video directed by Samuel Bear and starring 10-year-old Heather DeLoach as a tap-dancing girl in a B-costume who is met with ridicule and confusion until she makes it out to the disconcertingly bright green meadow in which blind melon are frolicking and she finds a bunch of other cheerful people frolicking in bee costumes. Heartwarming. This video, coming several months after the initially modest release of their full-length debut, is Blind Melon's big breakthrough moment. Somewhat to their chagrin, suddenly they've got a top 20 song and a multi-platinum album. Bassist Ben Smith talking to Rolling Stone in 1993, he says, It's really weird how the momentum picked up because of one video. The music hasn't changed. It's been on the CD forever. What we do has not changed. The video and the politics behind everything are what's changed. Success has a lot less to do with music than I thought it did. End quote. The B-Girl is a daily occurrence for them. To compound this sense of weirdness and discomfort, much of Blind Melon's debut album is devoted to Shannon Hoon singing about how weird and uncomfortable and out of place he feels. That's our friend, bassist Ben Smith, singing And So I Wave Goodbye, but that line still rattles me. Now, I will admit to you that I didn't spend much time with the full Blind Melon record in the 1990s because CDs cost $17 a piece and I was prioritizing. But one early morning recently, I was bumbling around the house watching my two-year-old daughter and I put on Blind Melon and then my daughter and I fell asleep in our recliner. And so the whole record just washed over us for an hour or so in like a wobbly, unstuck-in-time dream state. And I woke up with honestly no idea how old I was. And it was all super pleasant, actually. The chillness, the controlled noodliness, the strident lack of aggression, the rustic splendor, the birds gathering rain. Although, once I woke up and listened to it again, the song called Changes left me super rattled also. Feel the sun's coming out today Staying in It's gonna find another way If you're like me and you spent 1992 and 1993 as an oblivious teenager who had blind melons, no rain, running in a permanent loop in the background of your daily life, then maybe it did not occur to you initially, and by you I mean me, how much of the blind melon catalog is just Shannon Hoon being sweetly but also quite severely bummed out by the weather. As I sit here in this misery, I don't think I'll ever know Lord. Seen the sun from here. Shannon Hoon was born in Lafayette, Indiana, and grew up devoting all his time to wrestling, pole vaulting, and football because that's what his domineering ex-jock father demanded of him. Shannon told Rolling Stone, By the time I was 17, I freaked out because I didn't have an identity of my own. I realized I'd wasted years trying to be what my parents wanted me to be. 
End quote. When he says I freaked out, he means he started singing and chasing rock stardom and hanging out with stoners and experimenting with drugs himself and racking up a super daunting police record. He left for Los Angeles in early 1990 and his own mother, Nell Hoon, talking to Rolling Stone, she says she was certain that, quote, he would either come back in a body bag or he would come back signed. End quote. He got signed. The B-Girl video hit and he got huge. And he struggled quite a bit, and now quite publicly, with legal issues and substance abuse issues. Blind Melon put out their second album, Soup, in 1995. And I'd like you to know that for pretty much all of 1995, the Soup song, Galaxy, notably a much harder, darker, grouchier song than Blind Melon's usual, was totally one of the three to five songs I was desperate to hear on the radio. I love this song, and I never got to hear it enough. I loved it for the super dark and hard and grouchy ending, especially. I still was way too oblivious to have any idea what was really going on with this guy, of course, but it was apparent enough that all the people who mistakenly thought they knew what was going on with this guy were one of his biggest problems. Shannon Hoon died of a cocaine overdose on his tour bus on October 21st, 1995. He was 28. I heard no rain on the radio another 500,000 times after that, and I paid a little more attention to it then. I heard a little more clearly the plainness and the sweetness and the grace that is awfully hard to come by when a 1992 viral music video makes your rock band famous the blind melon arc from ubiquitous hit single to crushing personal tragedy that redefines and rehumanizes that hit single took less than three years but ask any hardcore smash mouth fan and they'll tell you that arc from ubiquity to tragedy somehow hits harder the longer it takes This episode is brought to you by State Farm. You might say all kinds of stuff when things go wrong, but these are the words you really need to remember. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. They've got options to fit your unique insurance needs, meaning you can talk to your agent to choose the coverage you need, have coverage options to protect the things you value most, file a claim right on the State Farm mobile app, and even reach a real person when you need to talk to someone. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. This episode is brought to you by the Disney Bundle. Disney Plus and Hulu are better together in the Disney Bundle with new exciting movies and series, all for one low price. On Disney Plus, join the ranks of Captain Marvel, Captain Monica Rambo, and Ms. Marvel as they team up to save the universe in Marvel Studios' The Marvels and embark on an adventure into the futuristic world of Iwaju. On Hulu, follow the fantastical evolution of Bella Baxter, played by Emma Stone, in the award-winning film Poor Things. And school is back in session for the beloved teachers of Abbott Elementary. The Disney Bundle with Disney Plus and Hulu. They're better together. 
All of these and more are streaming this month. Get the Disney Bundle with Disney Plus and Tulu. Terms apply. See DisneyBundle.com for details. Guitar Tone. My name is Rob Harvilla. This is the 105th episode of 60 Songs That Explain the 90s. And this week we are discussing Black Hole Sun by the Seattle rock band Soundgarden from their extremely rad 1994 album, Super Unknown. Ooh, guitar tone. That watery, eerie, discordant, but somehow enchanting guitar tone. Black Hole Sun is Soundgarden's moderately destabilizing 1994 viral video and long-awaited super breakout hit. It topped Billboard's mainstream rock airplay chart for seven weeks back in 1994 when that specific chart basically ruled my life. Also, according to Nielsen, Black Hole Sun was the ninth most popular song of the decade on mainstream rock radio from 2010 to 2019. I believe we have discussed previously that the 10 most popular songs on mainstream rock radio in the 2010s, from Alice in Chains to Nirvana to The Offspring to Soundgarden, were all released between 1990 and 1994. But let me say out loud once again that that is bizarre. But that's great news for this show. And also pretty cool for me personally, because this song gently kicks ass as well, albeit a little less gently. Black hole sun won't you come wash I didn't know this. I didn't find out about this until literally just now. But Chris Cornell is wearing a bent up fork as a necklace in the 1994 viral Black Hole Sun video. And it turns out that Chris received that fork necklace as a gift from Blind Melon frontman Shannon Hoon. Yes, that's right. Once again. My long and baffling digressions are unexpectedly validated after the fact. Big news for me. During a fan Q&A in Kerrang! magazine in 1997, Chris says, quote, It was given to me by the late Shannon Hoon, who fashioned it out of a fork he got in Denny's on the first tour Blind Melon ever did, which was opening for us. Kerrang! is a British magazine, so they feel compelled to clarify parenthetically that Denny's is a U.S. fast food chain, which is very funny to me. I'd say Denny's is more fast casual, but it's still funny. Chris goes on about the fork necklace. He says, I really liked it, but I stopped wearing it after he died because the other thing I wore was this ring that belonged to Andy Wood, who died. It's like, I don't want to wear these fucking things from people who died. End quote. Chris is referring, of course, to his dear friend and former roommate Andy Wood, frontman for the major proto grunge Seattle rock bands Malfunction and Mother Love Bone. Andy died of a heroin overdose on March 19th, 1990, shortly before the release of Mother Love Bone's debut album, Apple. He was 24. Andy's death hit Chris extraordinarily hard. And actually, let's start here, because this very morning, while bumbling around my house watching my two-year-old daughter, I put on the Temple of the Dog record from 1991. Temple of the Dog being the Seattle supergroup Chris convened in Andy Wood's honor. And that record starts with Chris crooning and moaning and wailing and howling, a song he wrote for Andy called 
Say Hello to Heaven. And holy shit, man, Chris Cornell's voice. The Temple of the Dog record, of course, has Chris and drummer Matt Cameron from Soundgarden, along with Mike McCready and Stone Gossard and Jeff Ament, who are Andy's bandmates and Mother Love Bone, and are on the cusp of starting Pearl Jam with Eddie Vedder. And we've discussed the all-time Temple of the Dog karaoke jam Hunger Strike at length on this program, and Hunger Strike is still pretty dope. But returning to this whole record now... This whole record clearly peaks with track one, with Say Hello to Heaven, and specifically with these extremely rad wailed lines from Say Hello to Heaven. We're getting too heavy too fast. Actually, this is superficial and also subjective, but not really. I feel like you can tell just by listening to Chris Cornell sing that he is A, the best pure singer slash rock star to emerge from the fabled Seattle scene. And he is also B, the hottest, right? Uh, Soundgarden formed in Seattle in 1984. And once he switched from drummer to frontman, the first five years or so, of the Chris Cornell live experience are defined in retrospect by lascivious tales of his shirtlessness. In the author Mark Yarm's fantastic 2011 book, Everybody Loves Our Town, an oral history of grunge. We'll be talking to Mark in a little bit here. Chris Cornell's early shirtlessness is discussed at some length. A guy named James Birdie Shaw who played guitar in the fantastically named Seattle band Cat Butt. James says... I remember one Soundgarden show where this girl was so enthralled with Chris that she was dancing like crazy and rubbing her rear end against me, all while staring at him. Did she know who she was rubbing up against? Probably not. I might as well have been a pole to her. End quote. And then, immediately thereafter, Mark Arm, no relation, frontman for beloved Seattle scuzz rock band Mud Honey, Mark says... This might be coming from a place of jealousy, but the shirtlessness seemed contrived. Chris would wear tearaway shirts. Clearly someone had done some damage to the seams before he would go on stage because he would grab the shirt right in the middle and then pull it straight off him. I think I might have respected it more if he just came out on stage without a shirt at all. End quote. Contrived shirtlessness. I love it. The usual move, the standard comparison, is to place Chris Cornell in the fabled armadillo-trousered lineage of 60s and 70s sex god-type rock and roll frontman, Robert Plant and Roger Daltrey and so forth. And just because that comparison is somewhat of a cliche doesn't make it not true. Tell me this guy wouldn't have kicked metric tons of ass in the 70s. Uh, This is heavy, man. Chris Cornell died by suicide on May 18th, 2017. He was 52. 
He had survived so much. He had mourned so many of his fellow rock stars. Andy Wood, Kurt Cobain, Lane Staley, Jeff Buckley. Way more spiritual crossover with Chris than you might think. Scott Weiland, him too. And then Chris, too, was gone. When he died, Soundgarden was on tour. Soundgarden's next show was in Columbus, Ohio. I had tickets. I had somehow never seen Soundgarden live. I was so excited. And then suddenly I was crushed. I was doubly, triply, quadruply crushed. And now I can't stop myself from hearing Say Hello to Heaven, a song Chris wrote 30 plus years ago about grieving his friend Andy as a painfully cathartic song about grieving Chris. I am hell bent, though, on keeping this from getting too heavy. You cannot imagine the baffling and digressive lengths I will go to to keep this from getting too heavy. Do you ever just sit around and think about band names? How strange, how ridiculous most band names are and how often band names get stranger and more ridiculous the more famous the bands are, but the band's fame and the blunt force repetition of hearing the famous band's ridiculous name two million times somehow tricks you into thinking that the band name isn't that ridiculous. So far today, we have discussed bands named Smash Mouth, Sugar Ray, Blind Melon, Soundgarden, Temple of the Dog, Pearl Jam, and indeed, Cat Butt. I submit to you that all of those band names are fucking ridiculous. Cat Butt, of course, is most ridiculous. Soundgarden actually is the least ridiculous. Uh, Soundgarden were named after a Seattle art installation called a Soundgarden, a dozen 21-foot poles that swayed with the wind and made a cool noise. It is very funny to me to imagine oblivious people showing up to early Soundgarden gigs, assuming that the band called Soundgarden were going to sound like Yanni or Vangelis or Enya or something. And then they're confronted by the super heaviness and contrived shirtlessness of a wailing Chris Cornell. But band names are tough, man. Naming bands is hard. One time I wrote a novel. You don't want to hear about my failed novel, and I respect that. One time I wrote a novel about a fictional rock band, and I took it upon myself to compile a list of like 150 fake band names. And those fake band names are very possible. The only successful element of the novel. Look out. Top five fake band names for my stupid novel. Here we go. Number five. Suck ass McSuckatash. <laughs> that's that's a good start. That should be higher. That's a great band name, dude. It's too late to reorder this, but just pretend that's higher. I really dig the assonance of suck ass McSuckatash. Uh, assonance, the term for rhyming vowel sounds. The fact that the word that describes suck-ass McSuckatash also has the word ass in it is just a bonus, really. That should be higher. Number four, the Hardier Boys. Ooh, literary. I have a lot of these. Can I do 10? Let's do 10. Top 10 fake band names for my stupid novel. Here we go. Number 10, Suck-Ass McSuckatash. Ah, shit, it's even lower now. Number nine, The Hardier Boys. Number eight, Pantera Bread. Uh, okay. Pantera Bread, who have an album called Vulgar Display of Cream Cheese. Okay. Like, I have a lot of these. 
dude. 150 fake band names is an exaggeration, but not like a huge exaggeration. I'm going to do 20. Top 20. I'll do it fast. Let's mix it up a little too. Top 20 fake band names for my stupid novel. Real quick. Here we go. Number 20, The Hardier Boys. Number 19, Pantera Bread. Number 18, Mixed Fuck Nuts. No. Number 17, Boner Machine. No. Number 16, Melon Baller and the Endless Breadsticks. Like the smashing poke. No, absolutely not. Number 15, Colon on the Cob. This was my college roommate Jean's band name idea. That is a very strange image, but I always dug it for some reason. Number 14, Chicks Ahoy! Exclamation point, like the cookies, right? That was also Gene. Not bad, Gene. Number 13, the Tarantino references. Uh, number 12, Buttlick Junction. I like to picture this one in an illegible death metal font. You know, these band names were supposed to be stupid and puerile for like thematic purposes, but I think you'll agree that I over-delivered on the puerile stupidity. Number 11, the five people you meet in hell. Okay, 20 maybe may have been too many to list here. Number 10, lousy massage. Couldn't even get an agent. Number nine, the prostate reformation. I was depressed for like three years. Number eight, Satan's bidet. And what would keep me up at night is, did this book fail because I didn't spend enough time on the stupid puerile fake band names? Or did this book fail because I spent way too much time on the stupid puerile fake band names? It's a real conundrum. Number seven, ass you like it. Ooh, Shakespearean. That's super literary. You can style that ass colon you like it or ass comma you like it. Or conversely, you can do none of those things. Number six, Bill Roman's dung. This one was extra disappointing. This one is too literary. Bill Roman's dung only works if you write it down. And also it doesn't work then either. What a bummer. Number five, jacuzzi. Like the word jacuzzi but French. That one actually does work if you write it down. Number four, swimsuit issues. Dude, I'd like to see artificial intelligence try to train itself with this book. The computer or whatever would blow up from awesomeness. You're welcome. Number three, suck ass McSuckatash. <laughs> yes. Hell yes. That's more like it. Top three. The system works. All right, hear me out. Number two, sexual Congress. Come on. Like they're all wearing powdered wigs, like the founding fathers. Come on. That's pretty good. We're going to finish strong, at least. And the number one fake band name for my stupid agentless boondoggle of a failed novel is an erection lasting longer than four hours. My point is that naming bands is hard. And Soundgarden's band name, while quite misleading, was ultimately quite effective in conveying the spiritually pummeling, sonically overwhelming, earthy and yet supernatural grandeur 
of Soundgarden's music. Soundgarden put out their debut EP in 1987. It's called Screaming Life, and the best song is called Nothing to Say. Guitar tone, and better yet, drop D guitar tone, where you tune the low E string down to D, so you can go burner, burn, burner, burner. That song rules, dude. Chris Cornell was born in Seattle in 1964. In 2020, on Facebook, Chris's brother Peter wrote, "My father was a tyrannical alcoholic and physically abusive man." He beat the shit out of me and my brothers. He wasn't kind. He didn't show love. Also, impact, punishment, and ridicule guided us along the path and molded us into the troubled beings that we would carry into the world and the future. End quote. Cornell is actually Chris's mother's maiden name. All the kids took it after she divorced Chris's father. Chris's favorite Beatle was John Lennon, but his favorite Beatles song was Hey Jude. He was in grade school the first time he realized his voice could startle people. In 2015, he told Rolling Stone, I think that's when the switch was thrown. The first time I had a music teacher play a scale on piano and ask me to sing it because she wanted to see if I had an ear or not. I remember singing the scale and she almost jumped off the stool and looked at me. I remember it because that's the first time that it happened. No one had ever looked at me like that. End quote. He learns drums. He joins bands. He plays drums and sings for a while until he decides he can knock more people off of stools with his voice if he doesn't have to play drums while he's singing. Soundgarden in 1987. We got Kim Thale playing all the guitars and writing all the music for now. We got Hiro Yamamoto on bass. We got Matt Cameron on drums. And we got Chris Cornell on lead vocals and guitar later. We also got Chris on the cover uh, shirtless and radiating rock god type energy. Though also, do you know Jim Ankauer, the old stoner burnout columnist for The Onion? who'd start every column with something like, hola, amigos, what up? I know it's been a long time since I rapped at you, but I've been knee-deep in the hoopla. And in his author photo, Jim's got this dazed, open-mouthed, transcendent, bonehead-type expression. I get a Jim Ankauer vibe from Chris Cornell on the Screaming Life cover. That is a super niche reference, but I stand by it. The second Soundgarden EP called FOP, featuring a cover of the Ohio player song, FOP, comes out in 1988. And there's not really a best song per se, but the most song, if you take my meaning, is called Kingdom of Come. She came in through the bathroom window. Those first two EPs come out on Seattle's fabled sub-pop records. But then Soundgarden signed with the even cooler and grittier independent label SST. Black Flag, Husker Du, Bad Brains, blah, 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 blah. For their 1988 full-length debut, 
ultra mega okay. And naming albums is hard too, but ultra mega okay is an excellent name for this record, which is super loud and growly, but is somehow missing an essential and distinctly Seattle sort of surly grit. The usual move. The standard comparison, the cliche that happens to be true is that Soundgarden is half Black Flag and half Black Sabbath. The band's early existential crisis, well, it's a crisis for some people anyway, is that Soundgarden is maybe a metal band that maybe thinks it's a punk rock band. A punk rock band is a cooler and much more desirable thing to be in Seattle in 1988 and also every year thereafter. But most punk bands don't have riffs this slow and heavy and punishing and righteous. I don't know what he's singing there. It doesn't matter. What matters is do 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 do. But the first truly great Soundgarden record, out on a major label, A and M, comes out in 1989 and is called "Louder Than Love," which was a compromise. They wanted to call it "Louder Than Shit" or "Louder Than Fuck." I can't decide which one of those is worse. It's a tie for worst. I do think "Louder Than Shit" or "Louder Than Fuck" would have been a more appropriate title for this record, though. Uh, maturity wise it's not the best or the most song on this record but the song called full on kevin's mom comes pretty close to being both when i bought this cd used at a college record store in let's say 1996 i gravitated instinctively toward full-on Kevin's mom. I don't mind telling you, though I'm way more hesitant to tell you that the song I really gravitated toward on this record is called Big Dumb Sex. It's satire. Dude, it's satirizing horny hair metal bands. Although, according to Corbin Reef's 2020 posthumous Chris Cornell biography, Total Fucking Godhead, Kim Thale had to explain to Hiro Yamamoto that big dumb sex was satire. It is a bad sign, generally, when your guitarist has to explain to your bassist that the song you just wrote is satire. Hiro Yamamoto leaves Soundgarden before Louder Than Love comes out, partially because he's sick of touring and partially because he wanted to be in a punk band and he's worried that he's actually in a metal band. And Hiro will go on to get a master's degree in physics. And this, too, is a bad sign for your porny, satirical rock song when the guy who's going to get a master's degree in physics doesn't get it. Hero wrote the song Kingdom of Come, by the way. In conclusion, Big Dumb Sex is part of my favorite two-song micro-subgenre, a micro-subgenre I describe as insufficiently satirical, sex-crazed, knuckle-headed rock songs with three-word titles where sex is one of the words. Two songs in this micro-subgenre. Here's the other one. 
I dig the harmonics, man. Yes, sex type thing by Stone Temple Pilots. This seems like a good place to say, I want to assure you that you don't have to think a rock band called an erection lasting longer than four hours is funny. It's fine if you don't think that's funny because I am happy to find that funny enough for the both of us. That is a service I can provide. I was washing dishes when I came up with that band name. I was looking out my back window while washing dishes and there was a deer in my backyard and the deer raised its head as if sensing my presence and the deer looked right at me and I looked at it and it looked at me and the deer conveyed to me telepathically the band name an erection lasting longer than four hours. That's all true except the part about the deer. Okay, that's enough fucking around. Soundgarden are through fucking around. What an incredible opening 10 seconds to a hard rock record. The guitars calling out to and answering one another like wolves. The first truly stupendous Soundgarden record comes out in 1991 and is called Bad Motor Finger and begins with Rusty Cage, which is more or less a song about how they're seriously totally through fucking around. This is not my favorite Soundgarden record, but I feel like I'd be a cooler person if it was my favorite. Does that make sense? Don't answer that. Bad Motor Finger, to its infinite credit, is the album that includes a song that got these lyrics onto mainstream rock radio. Did they play that version of Outshined on the radio? Or was there an Outshined radio edit that sidestepped the second verse altogether? I prefer to live in a universe where Chris Cornell got to say that on the radio. Bad Motor Finger peaks with a song called Jesus Christ Pose. It peaks specifically when this happens for roughly 16 seconds. We got Ben Shepard on bass now, and Soundgarden's Imperial lineup is set, and Ben makes his presence felt on a song called Slaves and Bulldozers, though it is challenging to make your presence felt when Chris Cornell is also perpetually making his presence felt. But this is not my favorite Soundgarden record. Super Unknown is my favorite. For its ambition, for its scope, for its shininess, for its tunefulness, for its bold attempts to enrapture me at 16 years old, 
back when I was a little intimidated generally by both punk and metal. And the truth is, if I were ranking the 16 songs on Super Unknown, I would rank, let's see here, Mailman, Fell on Black Days, My Wave, Spoonman, Fourth of July, maybe. That's Corbin Reef's favorite Soundgarden song, the Chris Cornell biographer. Corbin knows his shit. Super Unknown, the title track, possibly. Oh, and for sure, The Day I Tried to Live. I would rank six or seven Super Unknown songs higher than this one. This one barely sneaks into the top half for me. Though I do understand, of course, why this one is the one. Start with the guitar there, right? Chris in that guitar line in deep conversation, two wolves howling at one another. So according to Corbin Reef's book, early in the process of making Super Unknown, Soundgarden are struggling a little bit. And the songs just aren't there. And their producer, Michael Beinhorn, says to Chris, what are you listening to? What's inspiring to you? And Chris says, the Beatles and Cream. And so Michael says write a song that's like the Beatles and Cream. And then Chris somehow does. We're jumping around, but that's one of my favorite Chris Cornell lines. Black Hole Sun does indeed have the winsome prickliness of John Lennon, but also the rapturous melodiousness of Hey Jude. But this song is also too eerie, too disquieting to register as a mere power ballad. It's too pretty to be ignored, but too mesmerizingly ugly to be trusted. Sorry, not sorry, but I will not be dealing with the Black Hole Sun video, by the way. That shit creeps me out. No, thank you. My esteemed ringer colleague, Alan Siegel, wrote a great feature about the Black Hole Sun video. Go read that. He's a braver man than I. Blah. That's the other extra fabulous Black Hole Sun line. No one sings like you anymore is apparently something a fan said to Chris on tour, but there's some delicious ambiguity here in terms of what the fan meant and what Chris thought the fan meant. And then the song picks up steam and power and volume and creepiness and propulsion. And then suddenly Chris Cornell is disconcertingly duetting with himself. And then our dear friend Kim Thale unleashes the solo. The chaotic, fearless, boundless, bonkers guitar solo to the most popular mainstream rock radio song of 1994 and the ninth most popular mainstream rock radio song of the 2010s. Black Hole Sun is Soundgarden's catchiest and grandest and most conventionally anthemic song. But it is also, somehow, Soundgarden's gnarliest and skeeziest and most confrontational song. Paul McCartney never wrote a line as dark as boiling heat, 
summer stench, neath the black, the sky looks dead. John Lennon did neither. And George Harrison never shredded like this. I heard Black Hole Sun on the radio 500,000 times between 1994 and 1995 alone. And if I'm honest, it was never one of the three to five songs I was dying to hear. The day I tried to live absolutely was, though. Black Hole Sun was overplayed so intensely from Jump. Apparently, Black Hole Sun is still so overplayed now that you have to constantly actively remind yourself of how unconventional and subversive it is. Soundgarden made one more pretty great album, Down on the Upside, in 1996, and one ultra-mega-okay comeback album, 2012's King Animal. In the interim, Chris hooked up with three of the dudes from Rage Against the Machine and formed Audio Slave, which is a terrible name for a pretty rad band. Other stuff happened, but I can mercifully make myself forget about it all for the space of this guitar solo, which you have to fight your way out of, even though, really, you're tempted to stay wrapped up in it forever. And then, climactically, Chris sings the lines. The lines right after the solo. These lines. Hang my head, drown my fear, till you all just disappear. It was 23 years or so from the moment he sang these words when Chris Cornell himself disappeared. And you'd think such a long interval of time would make his disappearance hurt less. But that's the tremendous and terrible power of Black Hole Sun, that it only hurts more. Our guest today is Mark Yarm, a freelance writer and editor, and also the author of the great 2011 book, Everybody Loves Our Town, An Oral History of Grunge. Mark, thank you so much for being here. Thanks for having me, Rob. Uh, speaking as very much not a Seattle resident at the time, like as a 90s teen, I thought of like the big four of grunge, right? So Nirvana, Alice in Chains, Pearl Jam, and Soundgarden. But I wonder, is that the way you thought of them? Like, how did you envision Soundgarden within that universe, that lineage? Yeah, I mean, they're very much part of the big four. I mean, obviously, each of them very unique unto themselves. I mean, Nirvana need no introduction, clearly. Alice in Chains were from the more metal end of the spectrum. You know, Pearl Jam, in my mind, have always been a classic rock band. Even right, before they yeah. were being played on classic <laughs> rock radio, they were, you yes. know, like Mike McCready playing his, like, like Stevie Ray Vaughan-inspired Double mm, Trouble Jim, stuff. and Jimi Hendrix, yeah, yeah. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, obviously Soundgarden, who, at least early on, I mean, they were always com compared to Led Zeppelin and, and Black Sabbath, which was comparisons that I think they bristled at a bit. Uh, but, I mean, it's inevitable. You hear, like, a song like Incessant Mace from the early days, and it's just, like, 
straight up Led Zeppelin song, <laughs> whether they like it or not. But they didn't take that as a compliment. They they bristled a little bit. Yeah, when I talked to Kim from the guitarist for my book, um, he, you know, said we got compared to Sabbath and Led Zeppelin, but we were, you know, more into Killing Joke and Bauhaus. So they were they came from a very sort of arty place. I, starting even as a teenager, I had the sense that like Chris Cornell was a classic rock star, like in that sort of Robert Plant mode you know he looked like a rock star he had this monster voice like he just sounded and felt like a rock star the way people had been using that term since the 60s like did he stand apart a little bit even amid you know the eddie vetters of the world yeah i mean i think he stood apart for i mean i mean you think of chris cornell you think of him usually without his shirt on and he was very <laughs> oozing sexuality i mean yes. all oozing. i mean that is some, something that all four of the big four grunge band. I mean, they were all like fronted by beautiful men. I mean, Kurt yeah. Cobain and Lane Staley and uh, Eddie Vedder, all very good looking individuals. But, you know, Chris Cornell was like, you know, I mean, you, you, I remember the co- him on the cover of Spin, like kind of like jutting forward with his shirt uh-huh. off. Uh, and that, yep. I mean, that, you know, that was, that was very much his vibe and very seemingly unselfconscious about it. And obviously, early on, you know, a lot of his performances were marked by that. But also, you know, from all, by all accounts, a very kind of shy and unassuming person off stage. you know, very inscrutable. I mean, you know, obviously, Kurt had a level of inscrutability, but he was he was pretty outspoken. Like, I still don't, of the four of them, I still don't, I, I feel like I understand Chris Cornell the least. Like he's the one, he's the one I feel like, like Eddie Vedder was out there front and center with his politics and his, and his obviously disdain for fame or, or, you know, purported oh, disdain right. for fame. Yeah. And yeah, I mean, Kurt Cobain was the same way. It was, it, right. as we know from reading his journals now and stuff, he had a very complicated relationship with fame. He, he really did desire it while at the same time, like, you know, uh, sort of chafe at, at the idea of them selling out. And, uh, you know, Lane Staley came from a more, uh, metal background and, you know, they were a little bit more, they were a little bit more horn dogs, I guess. Um, that, that band, although Lane, Lane seemed like a little bit more like somehow, I'm sure he was as horny as the rest, but he just, he like <laughs> somehow, somehow right. elevated above, um, that so, something about him. A little bit angelic about him. I don't know. Elevated horniness. That's a great, <laughs> that's a fascinating concept. Actually. Right. I think that was a grunge band that was signed in uh, 92. <laughs> that record never came out, but it would have been, it would have been killer. I, I, I love Mark Arm in your book calls it contrived shirtlessness. You know, like there's yeah. a jealousy of just Chris Cornell's whole image. You know, was there anxiety in Seattle in the early days that he was like too much of a rock star, that he was a little too close to the old guard, you know, that grunge was supposed to be overthrowing. I mean, I don't know if anyone put it, in, you know, in, in that much thought into it. I mean, I think, you know, in talking to people, there was a certain amount of jealousy over the, the female attention that Chris Cornell got, which was apparently quite substantial. So, um, <laughs> yes. Yeah, but and and what Mark Arm, no relation, by the way, to 
to myself, um, which is a thing I always have to clear up with people because it's it's very confusing. Mark Arm, Mark Yarm, Nexus, but um, he, you know, I mean, Mark Arm called it contrived because he 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 said that Chris Cornell would have these like he would loosen the seams so that the shirts would tear That's away. That's right. It's like a show, WWF so. thing. Uh, yeah, yeah no, something like that. Something like that, and um, yeah, I mean, there was. I I think there was. In people I talked to, there was a certain amount of jealousy over that attention that he would get for that. Um, but I think Chris Cornell, as far as I know, just shrugged it off. Yeah, you said unselfconscious. Like, how do you think that Chris Cornell felt about fame, about rock stardom, about adulation? Do you think he struggled with it? Do you think he didn't particularly struggle with it relative to the way everyone else seemed to be struggling? He. Probably did. But I mean, what he told me something interesting when I spoke to him, which was that, you know, he pointed out that Pearl Jam was the band who did it right because they were overwhelmed by fame from when that when 10 came out, they pulled back, they stopped putting out music videos, they stopped um, releasing singles, they like really retreated, whereas he's like, where's Nirvana? You know, Kurt was (laughs) clearly very troubled and you know they just kept you know pushing out stuff they you know did a hard shape box video you know like they went on tour right, it's just like right. it was they like didn't a stop yeah they did not stop whereas pearl jam did stop and i think chris cornell attributed that to their longevity i mean there's a reason that that pearl jam are still around today and i think it's because they knew when to pull back and when to and how to sort of modulate or moderate their success. I I love Alice in Chains, but I love how people in your book hate Alice in Chains, right? That they were a little more polarizing. I think somebody calls them sound kindergarten. I think was there any ever ever any comparable aversion to Soundgarden? Like maybe as they got more popular yeah. their sound changed or were they always like enormously respected? I mean, I get the sense. I mean, there were there were two bands in my book that everyone shit on, and <laughs> one of them being Alice in Chains. I mean, not everybody shit on them because, uh, but you know, there were because they came from sort of more of a poodle-haired, poison, L.A. glam sort of uh, origin, and they were they were in a different scene. They were playing like the VFW halls and the roller rinks and stuff, whereas the sub pop guys we're playing in, you know, all the clubs that we, you know, the central tavern and all the clubs we know about. So, um, you know, they, they were from another part of town. They practiced at the music bank, which is a pretty infamous sort of like, I mean, there were some grunge bands who were there too, but it was more, a little bit more metal in nature. And they were seen as, as, you know, train jump, train hoppers, train jumpers, whatever you want to call them. And they bandwagoners. Yeah. And, the uh and 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 of course the other band was Candlebox, who you know <laughs> I dedicate a couple everybody of chapters. shits on Candlebox. Uh, yeah, they book. do. Yeah, yeah. I don't not deservedly. I mean, they Candlebox had the the unfortunate. Um, I mean, they were from Seattle, but they were a little younger than the rest of them. But they were kind of in the scene. But like, yeah, they were a little too late, and they they also were seen as taking advantage. Like people thought that they were rumored that they came from L.A. And, uh, you know, that they were fucking Madonna and whatever, you know, it, the, all the, uh, all the, uh, the ways you could put down 
another man. But um, to answer your question, I don't, I never got that sense that Soundgarden were, I mean, perhaps I'm not, I'm not privy to everyone's uh, interior thoughts, but I, I didn't get the sense because they were, they're OGs, you know, they were on from the beginning. I mean, I, I began my book with Deep Six, which was the CD, CZ Records compilation and the bands on that were uh green river which later became i always have to yeah i always forget one or or two of the bands in it but you know there's green river which obviously later broke off into mud honey and pearl jam there were the melvins who are still still the only band uh of these six who are still in existence today skinyard malfunction you men and then we had soundgarden so uh, very sort of proto proto grungy on that. So um, they were around from the beginning. They were all very uh, woven into the scene and respected. So I, I mean, I'm sure you know if you're in a if you're in a band that is not making it and you hear Soundgarden on the radio, of course you're going to be jealous. But I there were, I I don't recall any instances of people bad mouthing them at least publicly. Okay. I wonder what relationship Soundgarden and Chris Cornell in particular had with Black Hole Sun. You know, their biggest hit, I think, by certain objective measures, but it's a pretty anomalous song for them. It's a long way from that Deep Six compilation of Black Hole Sun, right? It, it's certainly as close to a power ballad as they ever got. Like, was there any re- resentment or anxiety within the band about this one song sort of blowing up like this? I mean, Kim called it their dream on, you know, sort of their... their... <laughs> Was that a compliment coming from uh, them? I think so. I think so. I think okay. he had some some difficult... I mean, this was a song written by Chris, dreamed up and written by Chris, and obviously different than his usual style. So. But, you know, I didn't really actually cover that, you know, Black Hole Song and Super Unknown very much in my book because by that point I was kind of documenting the descent of grunge, the, you know, the post, post Kurt, um, major label, like, uh, killing spree basically of all those bands. And then, and, you know, at that, that time, as, as someone in the book pointed out, they, they, Soundgarden had basically, they became, they were not so much affected by this grunge backlash because they had become pop stars um, with, especially with Black Hole Sun, which was ubiquitous. I don't know. You, you, you were around that. You're old enough to be around that summer. It was like on all the time. That video it was the only song they played on the radio. Like, <laughs> it might've been several I mean, summers memory, in a row. Yes. Yeah. It was, it was definitely probably not the song of the summer, but maybe the song of the summer for a certain, you know, like Gen X, sort of well lose a cohort but or you know but it was uh it was ubiquitous i you know i've never heard them say it's not like an albatross around their neck or or anything right. like that it's as far like as i can tell thing. i mean yeah 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 it's not like where they would as far as i know like not play it or or feel resentful for it i I just don't get that sense. Obviously, a lot of bands are like that with their their huge big hit, but I just never got that impression. I mean, again, I can't read minds, so uh, I don't know if there's you know. I'm sure some songs are more fun to play than others, but uh, I I just didn't get the sense 
that there was a lot of resentment, like how dare this song become popular? How much of that ubiquity do you think was down to the video? You know, I I was thinking about Blind Melon and like the B-Girl video, like completely transforming No Rain. And I don't think it's exactly like that with Black Hole Sun, but I do think that's a video that anyone alive in the 90s can still clearly picture. Yeah, yeah. I actually rewatched it right before this just to refresh like my memory. Video, and it, man. Yeah. You you don't like it? I do not like that. It, it creeps me oh. out, man. Okay. I know, okay. I know it's supposed to. I, it's, that's, that's the objective yeah. of the video, but yeah. it's a little too successful for my <laughs> Okay. I mean, it, it, it holds up pretty well for something, you know, decades old now. Um, but, uh, you know, some of the effects are, you know, I don't know. But then again, you, you go to a movie, you see a movie like The Flash, and it, it right, compares yeah, pretty well to that. It's like it's sure, the CGI it's not an is MCU like MCU product. Yeah. <laughs> oh no! It, well, I don't have very high regard for this, but um, it it is like it, it was very effective at using that CGI. I mean, very simple CGI at this point, like making people's eyes pop out and their mouths distend and things like that. Super creepy. And as I said, that was MTV was playing that. <laughs> constantly that summer i remember seeing that video so much and i mean i still like yeah like as you said i can still picture it like i still picture the there's a bouffant like housewife with a cleaver to, to about to take it to a fish and there's like kind of a preacher looking guy and you know the band kind of uh doing their best not to emote very much <laughs> you know as you know they were <laughs> they do seem a little dead-eyed you know on yeah, purpose I think that was, yeah there's that, that a was detachment on purpose. it sure. was on purpose i mean they were they also had a reputation they were you know when they were on tour with guns and roses they were known as frown garden because they were like <laughs> super intense and unsmiling that's, so that's very funny actually that name that's that's good yeah i like that um <laughs> i mean i don't know if they appreciated it very much but <laughs> probably not but that video is just so compelling and so memorable and so vivid that, as you said, we remember it all this time later. I mean, um, I, I think it had, I think I would say it had, I mean, MTV was obviously a force back then still. So I think it, it did have a big role in it. I don't like using the word underrated, but I don't think you can praise Kim Thayil enough, like as a guitarist, you know, as a songwriter, as a soloist. Like I love, you know, Mike McCready, Jerry Cantrell, whoever, as much as anybody, but like what's special and what's sort of irreplaceable about Kim? Uh, <laughs> as a one-time music critic, I mean, I used to work for Blender Magazine back in the day. I was always a terrible music critic. I couldn't describe like, his technique or nah, anything that's, like that. That's not but what I, we're going for. Yeah. Oh yeah. But I do get the sense like he does feel underrated to me. I, I, I can't quite pinpoint it, but it's just like his name doesn't come up enough. Uh, you know, when we're talking about great guitarists of the era or any era, um, I, I don't know. Maybe, maybe Chris Cornell, no pun intended, outshone him a bit. Uh, in that regard, he was obviously the focal point of the band. I'm not sure. Maybe it was he was flashy enough. I can't really pinpoint. I mean, do you have any theories why he might not get the love he deserves? 
Well, I was thinking about like guitar magazines, right? Where like they would teach you to play the solos and like you can transcribe the alive solo, like the notes, like you can't play it like him, obviously, but you can sort of put it on paper in a way that makes sense. And I don't think you can do that with the Black Hole Sun solo. Like it's, I can picture every moment of it still, but it's a lot less distinct. It's just like this giant swirl that just sort of overwhelms you. It just, it just feels like a different experience. And like, you can't replicate any of these solos, but that one is like extra hard to even attempt. Right. Right. I mean, it it does seem like, I mean, I, I, I know that Kim is a very skilled guitarist and a wonderful person, by the way. I should say I've gone, gone drinking with him, which is he loves to drink and talk. (laughs) That's good. That's good. Yeah. No, it is good. It is good. It's fun, fun to hang out with for sure. But, um, yeah, I mean, I know that black hole sun was on some guitar world list of hundred best solos or something like that. But yeah, I don't, I just don't, I, I can't pinpoint it, but I don't feel like he gets the love he deserves. Um, maybe cause it's, because there's so much going on Black Hole Sun. So it seems a little secondary, maybe? I don't know. I don't know. To, to, to the Beatles. I mean, you're, you're, I mean, what draws you into that, that song is obviously, you know, the Beatles nature of it and kind of, uh, Chris Cornell's lyrics. And it's just, I don't, I don't know. I'm a little, I'm a little befuddled as to why he doesn't get more love. Yeah. <laughs> I'm sure he's fine with it. It's it's very cool that you got to just sit around and drink with Kim Fail. That's just that seems like a good time. Overall. It was, it was. He's uh, <laughs> he was like a philosophy major, so he likes yes, to philosophize. Right. And these are smart guys. Yeah, yeah. He is very yeah. They're all very smart guys. I mean, all the people in this scene, super yeah. smart, um, educated, and 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 articulate and thoughtful. And yeah. Thoughtful, yeah, for sure. I wanted to ask you about Susan Silver, you know, who was married to Chris for almost 15 years, I think, who managed Soundgarden, Alice in Chains, Screaming Trees, a bunch of others. I think she has a reputation as a really great manager. Like, and I was wondering, in terms of a band like Soundgarden, like, what does a great manager do for them? You know, what's the difference between a great manager and a bad manager? Like, why is she so important to them? Yeah, I mean Susan, as who I interviewed for my book, was is great and like obviously a superb manager. I'm not sure if she's still managing Alice and Jane. I don't know where that stands at this point, or if she's splitting duties, or if she's yeah, yeah, I I think think so. I think so. I've lost a little track of her lately, but you know, she she first started uh, managing the human. She's just very ambitious, very. Very, like, she could be very charming, very kind, but, like, also very no bullshit. I mean, you know, in in the book she talks about, like, I mean, to control a band like Alice in Chains. (laughs) Um, I mean, she was talking in in the book about, like, Mike Starr, or Mike Starr, who was the bassist, like, urinating on a wall and her having to, like, drag him out of a bar by his ear, you know? So, so I think think, someone's going to have to clean this up. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. I think it was, um, yeah, I mean, uh, I think it was very much her ability to deal with these grungy guys. Obviously, yeah. she had something, you know, some some ability and and a certain 
I mean, but, but as I was saying, so, somebody in the book said that she's like one of the, you know, four people who were super instrumental to the scene. The other uh, yeah. couple that come to mind are, you know, Bruce Pavitt and Jonathan Poneman mm, from Sub Pop. But, yeah. but, but this person placed, you know, Susan up there with, with him, yeah. with them as far as, uh, being influential to the scene. You know, she, she helped run this club, the Metropolis, which was very uh, pivotal for a lot of those early bands. And she was just, yeah, she's kind of force of nature. Yeah. I think you would have to be to even con- attempt to control, you know, Soundgarden or certainly Alice in Chains. I, did, I can't even imagine trying to do that. Uh, just to wrap up, I there are some super heavy scenes in your book, of course, and those tend to be, you know, Andy Wood's wake, you know, the death of Kurt Cobain, of Lane Staley. I it, it really breaks my heart to think of all the grief Chris had been carrying for so long and just to listen to the Temple of the Dog record now and to hear the grief in his voice. Do you hear Soundgarden differently now, or do you think about your conversations with Chris differently now that he's right. gone as well? I mean, I didn't really talk to him that much for this, but um, I don't know. I mean, it puts it in some sharp relief, I guess. But I mean, obviously, you go back and you sort through the lyrics, and uh, you, you, I mean, he was obviously had a brooding side for sure. I mean, as I mentioned earlier, he was super inscrutable. And his death is very confusing to me. The mix of drugs and, you know, taking his own life and what exactly happened seems very, like, sort of shrouded in mystery. It's not like, you know, Kurt Cobain's, despite all the many, many, many conspiracy theories, seems pretty cut and dry to me that the, the Chris Cornell thing seems to come out of the blue. You know, like, many, many years, you know, I guess how old was he in his fifties? But um it just it just came out of the blue, but uh to me at least. Um but yeah, it, it's super sad and super it's a bummer. It's I mean, with Lane and Kurt, those were expected. With Chris Cornell it didn't it didn't feel that way. So I think it's kind of all the more striking because of the surprise factor. I guess just to wrap up, I thinking what you said about how Chris drawing a line between Nirvana, who just couldn't stop, and Pearl Jam, who really did stop. Pearl Jam, who just took total control, you know, over their output and what they would do and how they who they wanted their fan base to be. Like just Pearl Jam sort of figured it out. I wonder where you fix Soundgarden, you know, on that spectrum, right? You know, Soundgarden put out one record after super unknown and then disappear for like, I don't know if it was 10, 15 years, you know, 13 years. Yeah. Yeah. Between a King animal, you know, the last one, but do do you think did Soundgarden manage at least for a while to sort of control their own narrative or did they ultimately struggle with it every bit as much, you know, as even Nirvana did? I think they obviously struggled with internal pressures in the band and that's why they kind of, fell apart the first time. Um, but I mean, I guess, I guess they were, they were somewhere in between. They, they managed to reunite quite successfully, record a couple albums. I don't, I don't know what's happening with the, the music that was being recorded when, when Chris died. Uh, I, I, 
maybe we'll hear it someday. I don't know. I, I, I've caught, I've, I've lost track of, uh, you know, as the years have gone by, I've, like my ear to the grunge ground a little bit less so. So, um, I'm not sure what's going on with, going on with, with that music, but, um, yeah. So I think they, they were kind of a middle ground of a band that, that sort of obviously burned out, but was able to get back together with pretty, seamlessly at first it seemed yeah it did uh mark this has been awesome thank you so much for talking thank you rob i appreciate it thanks very much to our guest this week mark yarm thanks as always to our producers justin sales and jonathan kerma and thank you very much for listening and now without further ado I think you should go listen to Black Hole Sun by Soundgarden. We'll see you next week.